so um, I wanted to tell y'all, my plans got changed this week a couple of times. Um, so if you want to open your Bible, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to do so. Don't go to Nehemiah, though. That's not where we're going to be. That's one of my changes of plan. So if you have a Bible with you, open it to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Matthew 28 is going to be our text today. Um, so I actually changed my plan Friday afternoon. And for those of you who know uh, my weekly schedule, you know that Friday afternoon is awfully late to be changing where you're going to be preaching. So, um, but Friday afternoon I was thinking about baptism um, because we're going to celebrate baptism Sounds like next week now, uh, with with the young man who's back there grinning. Um, yeah, now he's hiding. So Bentley is going to uh, get dunked next week. We may or may not bring him back out of the water. Uh, so um, we had good intentions until you know everything went haywire in the Northeast. So um, yes, but we're going to get there. So I was thinking about baptism this week, and uh, I thought, you know, it would really be appropriate to look at why we need to celebrate baptism, why we do this thing occasionally. We go back and we get in this tub and we dunk somebody so that they're all wet in public. What's, like, why do we do this? Um, so I started thinking about this, and the first place my mind went was to the Great Commission. Um, and most of you all are very familiar with the Great Commission. Uh, if you're not familiar, hopefully, hopefully you will be by the end of the day. Um, but at this point, I had a good portion of a sermon written on Nehemiah chapter 8, which means next week's sermon prep should be easy. So, um, but then I found out yesterday, due to a whole host of circumstances, I'll let them explain to you later, um, I found out we're not going to be having a baptism this morning and hopefully in the next few weeks. But I decided that it would still be a good topic to cover today. Um, I thought for about, I don't know, five minutes we might change plans again and go back to Nehemiah chapter 8. And then I thought, no, I, I believe God laid this on my heart to speak from Matthew 28. So we're going to open to Matthew 28, and that's what we're going to look at today. So, um, yeah, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to trust that God's going to work all this for good and that uh, he's going to do what he needs to do. So, Matthew 28. Now, this is one of the most familiar passages in the Bible, um, and for good reason. It's, it's kind of important. Um, kind of important is underselling it pretty drastically. Um, it's, it's important, okay? And many of you in this room could probably quote from memory um, these five verses. Um, if not all five of them, probably at least the last two and a half of them. If I asked most of you, at least many of you, I'll say, to quote the Great Commission, many of you could do that. Um, and I'm confident that if you've been here for any amount of time, you have heard the Great Commission. Um, we try to do this somewhat, I, I say we, I try to do this somewhat regularly where I just say, you know, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. So, we try, we, I'm going to keep on using that first person plural even though it's me, so, um, we try to, uh, try to keep that on our minds because this is important. This is a big deal. Now, while it seems like it might be easy to preach such a familiar passage, which is what even, even I thought at first, like, hey, everybody knows this. This should be really easy to preach. I've actually found that the common passages, the familiar passages, are sometimes the hardest to preach. Um, and sometimes the obscure passages, they're easy. And I don't know why that is. We can talk about that later. But I believe that this is something we need to hear today. Um, I believe that this is what God wants us to hear today. So, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Would you all stand with me and let's read God's word. So, beginning of verse 16, it says... 
The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. So, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. I think the best thing we could do at this point is just to back up just a few verses and what's actually set the stage for Jesus speaking this here, okay? For Jesus giving this great commission, okay? So what's happened to this point is Jesus has been crucified, right? Jesus was put in the tomb. Jesus was raised from the dead. And on that Sunday morning, Mary and the other Mary, Matthew says, go to the tomb to go to embalm the body is what they're going for. They're bringing these spices for embalming the body. So they go to the tomb and they find the tomb is empty. And the angel shows up and says, actually, it starts out with the angel, I believe, unless I'm misquoting here. Yeah, the angel says, don't be afraid. Instead, he says, go to Galilee. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's risen from the dead. Go tell my disciples, go tell Jesus' disciples to meet me in Galilee. Go tell them to meet me in Galilee. So they've been told to do this. We assume that these ladies then do that. They go back, and of course, as they're going, they encounter the resurrected Jesus. They encounter Jesus after his resurrection. So from there, they carry this message back. They tell them to go meet him in Galilee. And then these 11 men go to the place where they believe they will encounter Jesus. Right? That's kind of what happens here. So ladies, Mary and the other Mary, they encounter Jesus, they come back, tell the men, go here, that's where you're going to meet Jesus. See, and this is something we actually talked about Monday night just a little bit at our small group. And some of you are thinking, I don't remember talking about the resurrection. We did, um, just not directly. See, what happens here is these people, these 11 men, they go where they will meet with Jesus. They put themselves in Jesus' path. They put themselves in the right place to encounter Jesus. Right? We talked about this idea of placing ourselves in Jesus' path, in front of Jesus, where he's going to be. Right? And that's essentially what they do. And if we learn from them, we'll be able to do the same thing. Because that's what we want, isn't it? It's what we want, right? To encounter Jesus, to actually like, meet the resurrected Savior. That's what we want. So we need to place ourselves where they are. Now, what we talked about in our small group was, uh, was this idea of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, so you all know, he was a, a wee little man and a... And he climbed up in a... Four. Oh, good. You guys know the song. Oh, look at that. I should have made you sing it. That would have been way more fun. Um, yeah, so they, what he did is he placed himself where he knew Jesus was going to be coming. So he knew Jesus was going to be coming down this way. So he climbs up in this tree where Jesus is on his way, knowing that he was going to be in the path of Jesus. See, I, I think that's a good way of looking at this. These men, they can't make Jesus do anything, can they? They can't, they can't somehow coerce Jesus into going this direction. No. That's not what they're trying to do. Instead, they've been told, Jesus is going to meet you in Galilee, so place yourself in Galilee where you will run into the resurrected Jesus. They're putting themselves in a position to encounter Jesus, to experience his presence, his, like the resurrected Savior. 
So that's what they're doing. They know that Jesus is faithful. He's going to be where he says he's going to be, and we should do the same. So then, when they see Jesus, they respond, right? First thing it says is they worshiped. They worshiped. They literally, literally what that word worship means, it means to prostrate yourself, like to fall on your face. And that's what these guys did. They see Jesus and they fall on their faces. Literally, they bow down, put themselves in the right spot, and then they see Jesus. They just see the resurrected Savior, and they can't help but fall on their faces and worship him. See, but something interesting happens at the, the second part of that. It says, but some doubted. But some doubted. See, this, uh, this actually kind of throws a wrench in what we think should happen, isn't it? Like, it's just this huge wrench that throws it right in the cog there. Because some doubted. Does that mean that some of these 11 guys, these 11 guys who had walked with Jesus, they knew Jesus, they, and now they see the resurrected Jesus. Like, he's, he was dead, now they see him, but some doubted. Does that mean that they didn't believe? I don't think so. I don't think that's what we're getting at at all. Um, the word doubt here is an important word. It, it doesn't mean some deep-seated skepticism. It's not like, well, I don't really think that's Jesus, or, well, maybe he didn't really die. No, this word doubt, it indicates uh, a wavering or, or a hesitation. It's like they hesitated. See, and what we learned from church history is that these 11 men, they went through an awful lot for the sake of following Jesus. I think whatever doubt they had, it was cast out pretty quick. That hesitation may have been there for a moment, but I don't think they ever stopped believing. See, I don't know about y'all, but um, I'll tell you, in my life, like, I've been a believer for a lot of years, and there have been times in my life where I have wavered. There have been moments in my life where I've hesitated to follow Jesus. But that doesn't mean I stopped believing that Jesus is who he says he was. My faith may have been weak, but that doesn't mean I didn't have faith. Y'all tracking with that? Even if you don't agree with me, at least understand what I'm saying? Are you alive? Do you have a pulse? Oh, some of you do. That's good news. I'm glad. Man. All right. So that's what I think we see happen here. See, but what happens then whenever they see Jesus? And it says, but some doubt it. Jesus draws near. Jesus comes nearer to these men. One commentator said, the meaning therefore appears to me, to me to be that some at first hesitated until Christ made a nearer and more familiar approach to them. But that when, they, that when they certainly and absolutely recognized him, then they worshipped because the splendor of his divine glory was manifest. As Jesus came nearer, any doubt, any hesitation, any wavering they had, it stopped. And they worshipped. See, but then Jesus begins to speak, and he gives this great commission. Um, see, these, these worshipping men, these men who have now worshipped Jesus, they're about to have their lives flipped upside down. Because Jesus is about to give this commission. Look, I don't, I don't like it whenever we oversell something. Like, but I don't know that I can oversell how weighty these words are. Like, these guys, these guys had spent the last, let's just call it three years. Last three years following this rabbi, following this teacher, following Jesus around, learning from him, all this. And they are about to have their lives shaken. Like, it's about to be completely and totally changed. The purpose of their lives is about to be radically altered. They are about to hear the words that will not only change them, but will change the rest of history. These words, I don't think you can oversell how weighty these are. This is not just a commission. This is like, well, there's a reason we call it the Great Commission. This is what these people were meant for. This is what they were made for. And this is what we as Christians ought to long for, right? We say, we say I, 
Again, we, first person plural. Look at that. I say just about every week from up here that we, as a church, what we want to be is we want to be a body of believers who proclaim Christ, empowering all people to become mature followers of Christ through the wisdom of the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to be. We want to be a body of believers. If you're here and you don't believe, I want you to know I want you to believe in Jesus. I want you to trust in Jesus. But if you do know Jesus, I want you to proclaim Christ. And that's what these men are being commissioned to do. And I think that Jesus here, in this great commission, he makes these three statements, these three really powerful statements that will cause us to proclaim Christ. They will change us. If we really stop and we really think about these words and who's saying these words, I think it will move us to proclaim Christ. So that's what I want us to look at, this great commission, this commissioning of of Jesus' disciples, those who follow him. And I hope we can see this, and I hope it moves us to proclaim Christ. So these three statements. The first one is an assertion of his authority, right? Jesus asserts his authority. It's the first thing he does. He gives his great commission. He asserts his authority. Verse 18. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This word authority, it means power, authority. It means ruling power or a way that makes my brain work. It, mean, it could be translated jurisdiction, He says, all jurisdiction has been given to me. All of it. Now see, at this point, these men should know who Jesus is and what he's about, right? These guys have been following Jesus around. These guys have seen Jesus heal the sick. They have seen him cast out demons. They've even seen Jesus call a dead man out of the tomb. These guys have seen, they've seen it all. Then they watched him taken away to be crucified. And just so you know, the Roman government, they didn't mess up whenever they killed somebody. They knew Jesus was dead. And now here's this dead man standing in front of them saying, all authority, all power, all jurisdiction is mine. It belongs to me. So before Jesus tells them to do anything, he says, listen, there is no place that is out of my power. No place that is out of my authority. And notice he says in heaven and on earth, you know what else there is? Nothing. That's all of it. He says, it doesn't matter where you go. That's my jurisdiction. I'm in charge there. Before he ever tells them, go do something, Jesus reminds them, I have unlimited, ultimate authority. Now, why does he do that? Why does he remind them of that? Well, I I think it's because they had proven that they were incapable of doing much on their own, right? They weren't really much worth emulating, were they? These were men who were weak and scared. Now, understand, if if the the disciple, if Peter, was able to come and sit on the front row right now, I would have a hard time looking Peter in the eye saying, you were just some weak, scared little boy. Um, I'd probably have a hard time with that, because if you read through the Gospels, you're going to learn that Peter's pretty fiery, and he'd probably come punch me in the mouth. Um, So I'd probably have a hard time telling him that. But if I said, were you, was your strength weak? Were you scared? I have no doubt in my mind that he would say, yes, I was. I failed. If you don't believe me, go, go read the, Peter's epistles. You'll find that he doesn't build himself up all that much. They said he builds Christ up. So they were scared. The point is, these guys knew how weak, they knew how flawed they were. They had no authority to call somebody out of their sin. They had no authority to say, you need to change your life. Because they needed their lives changed. They didn't have the authority someplace else Someone else had to. See, I think about it like this. You all know that my, my dad, uh, my parents were teachers. 
right? Both my mom and my dad, they've been teachers as long as I can remember. Actually, that's not entirely true. My dad started teaching uh, the same day I started kindergarten. So um, he started teaching at South Holt the same day I started kindergarten at South Holt. Um, so it was kind of this fun thing, like, yeah, we've been to school the same amount of time, um, even though he's old and he's been to school a lot longer than I have. So for those of you who know my dad and you're older than my dad, I apologize for offending you. Um, but we started school on the same day. And I, I remember I was junior high, high school, something like that, and I wanted to go to the vending machine and get a pop, right? Uh, I wanted a Mountain Dew. So I went to the vending machine, and it was a buck and a quarter, and I had a dollar. I had one dollar. But I wanted a soda, so I went and I said, Dad, do you have a quarter? He said, what, what do you need it for? I'm like, first of all, it's a quarter. Why are you fussing over a quarter? Um, then I went on, because my dad's cheap. Um, I, I, said, <laughs> I said, well, I, I want to go get a pop. And he said, well, no, no. You have a dollar? Good. Go to the teacher's lounge. In there, they're 85 cents. 85 cents in the teacher's lounge. He said, so take your dollar, go get your pop. I said, Dad, I don't think you understand what a teacher's lounge is, right? It's a lounge for teachers. I'm not a teacher. And he said, it's okay. It's okay. If, if, now, understand, if I went in the teacher's lounge by myself, I just go wandering into the teacher's lounge, what's going to happen? They're probably going to be like, get out. You don't belong here. I had no authority, no power of my own to be in that room. None whatsoever. But he says, go in there. And he says, if somebody tells you, tell them you're getting it for me. Whatever. Like, just go get it. And really, I kind of was getting it for him because I was going to save him, like, what, 40 cents? So, yeah, big deal. Um, so I went in the teacher's lounge, and I got my pop. And somebody was to ask me, why are you in here? I say, well, my dad sent me. See, that's the thing. We don't have any right to call somebody out of their sin. None whatsoever. But see, we are reminded that Jesus has ultimate and unlimited authority. He can send us where we don't have the right to be. On our own, because he has the authority. See, the difference is, my dad was a teacher who did not have the ultimate authority. He did not. Jesus says, there is no authority that doesn't belong to me. It's all mine. There's no place I can't send you. It all belongs to me. Unconditional authority. So, do you know where you can go that's beyond Jesus' jurisdiction? The answer is nowhere. There is absolutely no place you can go that is beyond Jesus' jurisdiction. And see, that's actually one of the main themes of this Great Commission. It's this ultimate reality, right? Four times in these five verses, the word all in the Greek is used. Four times, repeatedly. Like there's, He's not leaving wiggle room. He says all over and over and over again. He's wanting to make it very clear. It's all his. It all belongs to him. Jesus isn't leaving wiggle room here. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He writes that Jesus said, Go to some very imperfect disciples. Who is to go out of this first band of disciples? Is it, or it is Peter, the rash and the headstrong. It is John, who sometimes wishes to call fire from heaven to destroy men. It is Philip, with whom the Savior has been so long, yet he knows, yet he has not known him. It is Thomas who must put his finger into the print of the nails, or he will not believe. Yet the master says to them, Go ye, all power is given unto me, therefore go ye. You are as good for my purpose as anybody else would be. There is no power in you, I know. But then all power is in me, therefore go. Jesus starts this great commission with this this assertion of his own authority of his own power, of his own jurisdiction. And I don't think we can miss that. No matter what we're called to do from this point on, no matter what he says from here on, all authority is Jesus. 
He says, so what authority are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the ultimate authority or some other authority? Because I have all jurisdiction. So, as I think this will move us to proclaim Christ whenever we hear Jesus assert his authority. Second thing he does, is, second statement he makes is actually a commission of his people. Right? So Jesus commissions his people. And this is the part we typically think of whenever we think of the Great Commission. Right? This is the part. We get to the, where we usually think of the Great Commission. NIV readers, uh, let's see, what verse is that? Is that starting at verse uh, 19? 19. What's the NIV readers? How many of you read the NIV? Oh, shame on you. I'm just teasing. I don't really care. Um, NIV readers, okay, what's the first word of verse 19? Therefore. Therefore. Okay, what does that word do? That ties it back to what he just said, right? All authority is mine. Therefore, do this. Because I have all authority, here's what you're going to do to respond to that. Okay? So understand, that's a good thing to remember. Like, Jesus has absolutely all authority. Therefore, he has the right to commission us. And then he does commission us because he has all authority. Okay? So that's one. Now, how many of you, how many of you read from the ESV, New King James, or Christian Standard Bible? That would include me. Okay. What's the first word you've got written down there? Go. Go. I hate to be rude, but that's not a good translation. Okay. So, um, we'll get to the go part here in just a minute, and I'll explain why. Okay, why I don't necessarily think we should start with the word go. All right, we'll get, we'll get to going here in a minute because obviously that's a crucial part to the Great Commission. <clears throat> but it's not the primary thrust of the sentence. So put a pin on the go. We'll come back to it in just a minute. The main thrust of the Great Commission is actually the next word. Go, therefore, make disciples. This is the thrust of the Great Commission. This is the main point of the Great Commission. And I'm going to go grammar nerd on you for just a minute, so please don't check out. Um, if we can just take a minute, we can actually look at the structure of the sentence and look at the, the main point of the sentence. I think it will help us better understand the Great Commission. Okay? So just a nerd for a minute. The word go is a participle. Anybody know what a participle is? Nobody? Okay. Well, a participle is essentially it's a verbal adjective, and we'll talk about that more here in just a minute. Okay? So it depends on another verb. It's, it's an adjective that depends on another verb, okay? So we'll come back to that here in just a moment. The only command, the only imperative, the only, only verb in this entire commission that has any weight, any authority behind it, is the one that's translated, make disciples. That's the only word in this great commission that has that kind of weight behind it, okay? So he says, make disciples, now, words like go, baptize, and teach, these are all participles, they're all verbal adjectives that explain the main verb. Okay? Now, are you all tracking with me? One verb has the weight. It means make disciples. The other three show us how we do that. We're going to talk about those in just a minute. But first, we need to understand this make disciples. Okay? So, we know that. We know we need to make disciples. But what does that even mean? What does it mean to make a disciple? We're going to use those three words here in just a minute. But... First, let's just look at this word, okay? The word is mathetuo, okay? I think we got it in here. Mathetuo. It's a fun one. Everybody want to say mathetuo? All right. That word means to make or to be a disciple. Now, that's a very general way of saying it. The way it's actually put here is in the imperative form, so it's thrusted out like a command. Make disciples. You, wherever you are sitting, make disciples. And this is what Jesus gives to his people. All authority is mine. Make disciples. All right? This is the main thrust. Now, what in the world is a disciple? Well, the word disciple comes from the word that means to learn, to learn from, to learn under. It means to be trained or instructed by somebody. 
This word is often used, especially in ancient literature, to talk about an apprentice. So if you want to learn how to become a carpenter, what do you do? You become an apprentice of a master carpenter, and that master carpenter teaches you how to become a carpenter. That's what this word is, and that's what it would describe. It was an apprentice who was learning from a master. You wanted to learn how to do metal work. What do you do? You find a master metal worker, and you come on as an apprentice under them, a disciple under them who would learn from them. That's the idea that's being, that's being portrayed through this word, make disciple. Now, to become a disciple, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort. None of this happens overnight. It's difficult at times. Literally, if you listen to the word disciple, you hear the word discipline. You hear how those two go together? Everybody likes thinking about discipline, but what are we doing whenever we discipline our children? What are you doing? You're training them. You're teaching them. That's, that's the whole point of disciplining. It's to make them a disciple, which is why I tell you over and over and over again, we should be discipling our children. We should be training them, teaching them, directing them. That's the whole point. That's what a disciple is. It's one who is being directed. So we are trying, our goal is to make disciples, make apprentices. That's our task. That's what Jesus is saying to go and do because he has all authority. But how do we do that? That's where these three participles come in, right? These verbal adjectives. First, go. You all know what it means to go, right? You all familiar with this word, go? Okay, good. I was really going to go to the Greek word here also, but I decided not to because we could get hung up on this all day. The word go seems really simple. However, in the Greek, the way it's written here becomes very difficult, and scholars have debated what this word go means for about 1,700 years or more. So what I don't want to do is get hung up on go whenever you know what the word go means. Okay? Go. What does it mean to go? It means you move from one place to another, right? It means to travel. You are literally moving yourself. But see, the form that this word is written has made it so that many interpreters say it means as you go, or it means having gone, or some even think it's a, here's, here's super grammar nerd, it's a participle, with, a participle with imperatival force is what some will say, so it means it's still a command. I just disagree. Okay, so, y'all nerded out by all this grammar stuff yet? I'm seeing a lot of head nodding. Okay. No? Somebody said, no, that's great. I love it. All right. Okay. Here's what should seem clear to you by now. What should seem clear to you by now. It's an assumption of whoever it is that is making a disciple that they will go. That is the assumption. If you want to make a disciple, it will require you to go. So if you want to say, okay, this word means as you go, as you go throughout your daily stuff, whatever, I'm not going to argue with you. I don't think that's the main thrust of this word, but whatever. Okay, I think it makes it clear that there needs to be a purpose for going. There's an intentionality attached to it. Okay, so as we make disciples, we need to be going. We need to be placing ourselves in a position where we are going to be encountering those who need to be discipled. That's the point. There's an intentionality. It's not like make disciples whenever they come to you or make disciples whenever it happens by accident. No, go. There is an intentionality of putting ourselves in a position to disciple someone. That's what this word is trying to express. We need to be intentionally putting ourselves in the path of those who need to be discipled. So, that's the first, that's the first part of simple. Second part of simple is baptize. Go, then baptize. That's the second part of disciple making. So we've gone to the one who needs to be discipled. We've shared the good news with them. They've received this. Now, now what? What's step two? Baptism. Baptism. Now, I'm going to give you a Jared definition, and about a year ago, this had the backing of our elders. I assume it still does, but I didn't ask them this week, so 
There you go. Um, I'll speak for our elders without permission. How about that? All right. Um, Jared definition of baptism. Baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord in which a person who has come to faith in Jesus and repented of their sin publicly identifies with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection by being submerged into and raised out of water. That's a long definition, right? You all going to recite that now? Please don't because it's a Jerry definition, probably not worth memorizing. Okay. I'm going to walk you through that again, though. Act of obedience. Baptism is an act of obedience. If you have read the Bible, if you belong to Jesus, the Bible says you need to be baptized. Okay? It's an act of obedience to the Lord in which a person who has come to faith in Jesus, that's the order we see in Scripture. Somebody comes to faith in Jesus, then they're baptized. That's the order we see in Scripture. All right? So somebody who has come to faith in Jesus and repented of their sin publicly identifies with Jesus. So we're proclaiming publicly that our lives belong to Christ. And how do we do that? By being submerged into water, representing our death to ourselves, and being raised out of water, showing that we have new life in Christ. All right? You all tracking with that? All right. I don't know if you are or not, but I'm moving on. So I say this often. I say this often. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus and are not baptized, you do not have a good excuse for not being baptized. There isn't one. There's not. I want to make it as easy as possible. If you say you are a follower of Jesus to be baptized, there is no reason not to be. I've heard excuses. They're not good. I told some people I'm going to be a little bit abrasive this week, and I'm about to be even more abrasive. So if you don't like your feelings being hurt, you might tune me out for a minute. Okay? Please don't do that because if you are afraid your feelings might get hurt, it might, need, might be something you need to hear. Um, so this is probably not what you want to be here. But if you say you're a follower of Jesus, if you say you believe in Jesus and you have not responded by repenting and being baptized, then you probably need to repent of your disobedience and follow him in baptism. I don't know how else to say it, but I don't... I'll speak for myself, I believe that's sinful because it's disobedience to what God has commanded us to do. If you are a follower of Jesus, repent of your disobedience and be baptized. Anybody offended? Don't raise your hands, please. Now, I have never done a spontaneous baptism before. Like if somebody came today and said, I want to be baptized right now on the spot, I've never done that before and I probably won't start today. So, I wouldn't count on that happening, and there's reasons for that. I'd be happy to talk to you about that afterwards if you want to know my reason for not doing that. All for that. All for telling you why. But what I do want to say is, right now, everybody be very quiet for just a minute. Listen very carefully. Did you hear it? Some of you are thinking, what am I hearing? Hang on. I heard it again. Y'all can't hear it, can you? The baptistry is full right now. And we have a leaky faucet. So if you listen close, you'll hear the water dripping. Okay? My point? I'm trying to eliminate every excuse I possibly can. That baptistry is full of water right now. And it will be all week long. And it will be next Sunday. So if you're saying, well, I don't want to inconvenience somebody. You know what? It's not inconvenient. It's already filled. There's one more excuse eliminated. And you know what? We can baptize somebody not just on a, Sunday, on a Sunday morning. Although that would be my preference. We can baptize somebody on a Sunday night. Do you know we can baptize somebody on a Monday? Or even a Wednesday? Maybe a Friday. You know what? I'll be here Saturday. You get the point? Are you all hearing this? Point is, I don't know what the excuses are, but here's what we're told. As we are making disciples, as we are making disciples, we go, we baptize 
That's the way it works. We go, we baptize. And third, we teach. Specifically, it says, teach them, those who are being discipled, just some fun facts about who Jesus is. Not quite. See, this is where we miss it, right? We like to teach. We like to tell people facts. And sometimes we get hung up on facts. But that's not what we're supposed to be teaching. Now, don't understand. We have to teach facts. But those facts are intended to be observed. We teach them to observe or teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Not some obscure, distant, abstract reality. No, we teach people to obey. That's part of making a disciple. A disciple is one who follows in obedience, follows after Christ. If we're going to make disciples of all nations, that means we are going to teach them to obey, to live the Christian life. Now, these are things that we can see, that we can observe, things that we can demonstrate. Um, And this is the reason why every week as we open God's word, I do my best to apply, albeit in broad strokes, apply the text to your lives every week. This is why um, Alan and Elise are here on Wednesday nights and they do this thing they call deep dive. And they say, okay, we're going to find some more pointed application. Yeah. At least that's what I've been told. I haven't been there. So that's the rumor anyway. Is that accurate? Oh, good. I'm getting nods. And I heard somebody else say it. Fantastic. Awesome. All right. But that's the reason we try to apply this is because we don't want to just teach you facts. We want to teach you to obey Christ, to follow Christ, to observe all that he commanded. Okay? So that's why this is not just a commission. This is the great commission. This is what we are supposed to give our lives for, for making disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. We're supposed to give our lives for this goal. Okay? So as we, as we are moved to proclaim Christ, Jesus asserts his authority, he commissions his people, and then the third thing he does, third statement he makes, is, is a promise of his presence, right? Jesus promises his presence. The last part of verse 20. Um, he says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the beauty of this whole thing. Like this whole thing. Jesus, Jesus remember who this is. Jesus, who just said, I have all jurisdiction. It all belongs to me, so go. And then he says, you know what, but don't just go knowing that I'm in charge of everything. He says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. That's fantastic. As we go and do what Jesus commanded, we get to experience his presence with us. His presence in us. And what we're going to see uh, next week, assuming I don't change my plan again this week, um, what, what we're going to see next week whenever we flip back over to Nehemiah is, is that really obeying Jesus brings joy. And why does that bring so much joy? It's because we experience Jesus' power and his presence in our lives in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. Notice that he promises his presence here to never leave. He does it in the context of mission. Yeah. You know what? I have never experienced Jesus' power and his presence in my life quite like whenever I'm doing what Jesus has taught, what he's commanded me to do. I've never felt it the same way I do whenever I'm in the context of mission, doing what God has commanded me to do. So get the flow of this. Jesus has authority over everything, both in heaven and earth, and he tells them to make disciples uh, this seemingly impossible task, right? Go take this good news to people who won't want to hear it. They're not going to want to hear it. Right? And actually, the Bible says that it's foolishness to the world. It says foolishness to the world. 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Okay? So, Jesus says, do this impossible task. 
I have all authority. Go do this task that you can't possibly do on your own. But don't worry. I have the authority to make this happen. And then he says, even though it's going to be hard, I'm going to be with you. The one who is the supreme authority, the one who has issued this command, the one who conquered hell, I'm going with you, he says. Woo! You all want to experience that guy's presence in your life? If I said you have the opportunity to meet the creative agent in all of history, like the one who, who somehow thought up heaven and earth, the one who placed the stars where they are, the one who knows the depths of the seas, yeah, that guy's going to go with you as you're going out and doing stuff. Does that sound cool? Like, okay, let's just take away, like, like, okay, you need to come to faith in Jesus for just a minute. Now, that's a bad thing to say as a preacher. But just understand, even if you were an atheist, you didn't believe there was a God. If I said that there was somebody who was so creative, they know all things. They know everything. Like, they know how deep the deepest trench in the sea is. They know how far the universe expands. They know how your body is composed. They know how a baby is formed in the womb. And you can spend your life with that person. You're never going to mind the depths of that understanding. Not completely anyway. But you're going to get to know and experience some really cool stuff, right? He says, I am with you. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want the creator of the universe to be there with them? So not only does this cast out fear, which it does, not only does it bring joy, which it does, but it is also the most freeing thing that a person can possibly experience. Knowing that the one who carries unlimited authority, unlimited power, is with you and for you. And he loves you. You know how freeing that is? And you know when you need to doubt? You know when you need to doubt his presence as a follower of Jesus? Do you know when you need to doubt it? Anybody? I see a couple of you shaking your heads. Never. Never need to doubt that. Okay. Never need to doubt that because he says he's always with you. Okay, I'm going to give you a, a, the translation of this last part from the New Jared translation. Um, it says, literally, literally, this is what it says. It says, I am with you all the days until the completion of forever. I like that translation. I am with you all the days until the completion of forever. Do you know when forever is complete? Never. Ha. Yeah, it's never over. He's always with you. His presence with you never ends. He's promised that. That's the, last, that's the last statement he makes. He says, I have unlimited authority. Make disciples. And by the way, I'm going with you. And I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. You know what? Your faith is going to be weak. At times you're going to waver. But you know what? I'm going with you. I am going with you. I am there, present, all the time. Which means that we not only get to work for Jesus, we get to work with Jesus not only are we saved out of our weakness, but we get to walk with the one who saves. And what more could we possibly want? He says, we're moved to proclaim Christ. Jesus asserts his authority. He commissions his people and he promises his presence. So what? Well, I want to end with three questions today. Um, first question. Whose authority do you walk in? Whose authority do you live in? Well, the answer is Jesus' authority. And we all know that because he already has all authority. But whose authority are you trying to walk in might be a better way to say that. And see, if the answer is not Jesus' authority, then you're walking in a power that is limited and insufficient. It's not going to be enough. Okay? Jesus says, I have all authority. And he means all authority. 
all authority, everything. It all belongs to him. So the best thing you can do then is put yourself in his path and experience his authority in your life. And I promise you, it won't always be easy, but I promise you, it will bring joy. It will. You'll get to experience something that you never thought possible. So submit to his authority. Walk in his authority, not in your own. Second question I want to ask you is, have you followed him in baptism? Um, I told you I was going to be a little bit abrasive, and I'm not going to get off this point because I think it's too important to move past. Have you followed Jesus in baptism? If not, again, I can't imagine what excuse you have. And maybe there's a good one, but I haven't heard it yet. So I understand this. I understand that turning from sin and following Jesus and declaring that he is your life, I understand that that can be messy, and I understand that can be difficult. But I promise, again, I promise you, he's worth it. He is absolutely worth it. So, wherever you are, whoever you are, whether you're here or you're online, if you are not following Jesus, if you have never followed Jesus in baptism, stop waiting. Stop waiting. Okay? The third thing I want to ask is, are you enjoying the presence of Jesus? Like enjoying his presence in your life. Um, See, people oftentimes look at the Christian faith and they think rules to follow. Um, And I get it. You open the Bible, there's rules. Sure there are. There are things that it says to do. Again, we're not just trying to teach people some obscure facts about some some feeling or some emotion that we should have. We teach people to observe all that Jesus commanded. Like real and tangible things. I get it. So yeah, there's rules. Of course there are. Does that mean that if you break a rule, you're going to get zapped by lightning and sent to hell forever? No, that's not how it works either. By the grace of God, we've been forgiven. But still, yeah, of course there are things that we're supposed to do as a result of following Jesus. Of course there are. But see, we oftentimes look at those rules as a box that we're put into. The best analogy I ever heard, and I think I've shared this here before, is a fish in the ocean. A fish does not feel like he is put in a box because he's put in the water. And he said, no, you can't leave the water. No, he's freed. Because he's being what he was created to be. Whenever we come to Jesus, yeah, there's rules. But what happens is we wind up following Jesus with the freedom to be all that we were created to be. We get to follow Jesus because we were created to enjoy his presence and to glorify him. That's what we're made for. You look back in the garden before sin ever entered it. You know what Adam did? He walked with the Lord in the garden. He was created to glorify God and enjoy his presence. And whenever we come to Jesus, yeah, there's rules that come. There's things that come along with that. Of course there are. And again, does that mean that if you break those rules that you somehow get kicked out? No, there's forgiveness and there's grace. Of course there is. If you haven't experienced that grace, you need to. Like there's nothing more freeing than experiencing that grace. But even then, we should still be striving to follow after, after Jesus where he's called us to go. To submit to him in obedience. Because whenever we submit to him in obedience, we find true freedom. Like real freedom. Because we get to walk with the Lord. We get to experience his presence in our lives. So are you enjoying his presence? Have you followed him in baptism? And are you walking in his authority? That's what I want to ask today. And if not, I want to tell you that there is hope, that there is healing, that there is freedom found in Christ. Let me pray for you all. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. Lord, I thank you... For, for Jesus' boldness. And why would he not be bold, Lord? We just read that he has all authority. But Lord, I thank you for this incredible command, albeit a difficult command, 
Lord, I thank you that you didn't just call us out of our sins, but then you commissioned us. You gave us an opportunity to walk in your power and your presence as we make disciples of all nations. So, Father, I pray that you would help us um, to not only hear this command, to not only know this command, but then to obey this command. Um, Lord, let us be a people who want to make disciples, to make apprentices, to make followers of Jesus. Um, Lord, and give us the power to do so. Because we don't have the authority to call somebody out of their sin on our own, but we know that you do because you have all authority. So, Lord, I pray that you would continue to do that work. Lord, I want to pray for the many people here, the the folks that are here today. Lord, I want to pray for the ones who know you. I pray that you would give them a boldness. I pray that you would give them a dedication, uh, just like a burden, this longing to follow after you, to do what you've commissioned your followers to do and make disciples. Lord, give us that kind of a desire to see other people come to know your grace and then follow you. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us that desire. Lord, for those who have not followed you, Um, who have not submitted their lives to you, who have not realized your ultimate authority, I pray that you would convict them of their sin that separates them from you. Lord, I pray that you would call them out of it, that they would repent of it, and that they would submit to you by repenting of their sin and being baptized. So, Father, I pray that you would stir hearts as only you can. Um, Lord, and I I just thank you so much that we we can know Know your presence in our lives. Lord, it's good to not be, able, be a person who has to doubt whenever I wake up and get out of bed this morning saying, well, is Jesus going to be with me or is he against me today? Lord, instead, I can know, absolutely know with unwavering confidence that Jesus is with me and he's for me and he loves me. So, Lord, we praise you for that today. Father, I pray that we could walk in that truth that we could live in that truth and that it would change our lives. Lord, make us people like these 11 disciples became, people who wanted to proclaim Christ, declare that truth, and see people become mature followers of Christ. So, Lord, help us, move us, guide us, and direct us. Do the work that only you can in your authority. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.